0: Andrew, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you. I can't believe you're here having this conversation with me. I just a few months back, you were my coach and mentor and whatnot. And now here we are. So really humbled and thankful for you being here.
1: Dude, me too, man. I appreciate you having me on. I'm like excited to chat and see where it goes and big fan of yours. Excited to be here too.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. It's a podcast about false starts or failed attempts or things that did not go that well, you know, the untold stories or the untold struggles that don't really look nice in a case study or something that you'd be proud of posting on LinkedIn. And with your exposure to so many people, and obviously with your experience, I thought you'd be the ideal guest. Maybe before we start, you could give us a a little intro about yourself so that
1: the folks that don't know you get to know you. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. And I'm excited to share the misses too. I just feel like in the growth space, all you hear are the highlight reels. You know, you hear about the changes and the big results, but those come from a bunch of swings and misses along the way. So I think it's great that you're highlighting this stuff. I've certainly had plenty of those for anyone who doesn't know me. uh, I'm Andrew. I've been in B2B SaaS for the last 15 years. The first half of my career as a marketer, Uh, I worked at a big ad agency. Uh, It was like my first job out of college doing like big paid ad campaigns for Disney and Aflac and Bank of America and all these massive companies. Super cool. Like they did a ton of experimentation. That's really where I learned about experimentation. Like Disney would take a million dollars in October. i worked for Disney parks and cruises and they take like a million bucks in October and test Mickey and Pluto and Donald and Mickey and uh, Minnie and all these different creatives and all these different landing pages. They'd figure out what worked. And then in November, December, they'd pump in like 20 million bucks in the winning campaign. So I learned a ton about experimentation really from day one in my career. I always wanted to work for small businesses. So I left that world and I went to HubSpot where I felt like I got to take a lot of the concepts that I learned and apply them to like smaller SaaS businesses, which was really cool. So that was like really the first half of my career. And then the second half, I got into this world of growth. So I left HubSpot bounced around at a couple little startups that didn't make it. Eventually, I landed at a video marketing software company called Wistia. It was a super cool business. It was free. I joined in 2014, 2015 maybe. It was freemium. And there was only a couple of freemium companies at that time. I remember. Yeah, it was like Wistia. It was like MailChimp. There was like a handful of them. And I was like, man, this model is awesome. Like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life is work on this model. It's kind of like e-commerce for SaaS. And I was an acquisition marketer that slowly worked my way into uh, doing a lot of experimentation and slowly got to take on new user onboarding and converting free users into paid subscribers and pricing experimentation and updating the pricing model and then migrating a bunch of paying customers from old plans to new stuff. I got to do tons of shit that I had no business doing. And it was awesome. I went to another company called PostScript. It's a text message marketing company for e-commerce brands. And I basically ran a similar playbook again. And in June, 2021, I made a big change. So I I left the full-time SaaS world. I left my job as head of growth to build this business that I had in my head called Delivering Value, where I work- love the the name, by the way. Well, you know, the name was chosen intentionally. Thank you. Because it encapsulates my philosophy on growth, which is all about understanding users and delivering value to them in creative ways and less on the shortcuts and the hacks. And also, I feel like my business is coaching people like you And advising SaaS businesses that don't have someone like us in-house yet. And I just felt like it was also my approach as a coach and as an advisor. Like It's just all about understanding who it is that I'm working with and what is valuable for them in our relationship. And then I deliver more value to them so that they can deliver more value to their organization. And it's just this really cool thing. So the name keeps me grounded. That's what I'm up to. That's who I am. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. And um, you were, at least to me, truly um, a hidden advantage. It was hidden because I was not comfortable to be so vulnerable at the time to share that you were working with me, but it doesn't need to be hidden. Anyway, when we were talking about what to talk about, uh, like a few weeks back in the podcast, and I was uh, sharing that people normally share like the tactics and the numbers and the metrics and whatnot, You had a bunch of those stories, but then your eyes really popped out when we started talking about the human side of things. And I'd love to hear what you observe in the context of the struggles and the failures in the people that are driving growth in organizations. So what comes to mind when you're
1: thinking about this? I'll share a little bit about my journey and what got me excited about this. So I took Reforge. Back in 2015, when it was called something different, it was still with Brian and Andrew, but it was called uh, Silicon Valley Business Review. And I don't know if it was the first year that it was a thing, or I was in one of the first few cohorts and it was incredible. To this day, I still have an Evernote like notebook with all of my notes from the curriculum. And I just felt like my brain exploded and I felt like I got the SAS cheat code. And I was working at Wistia at the time. They paid for it and they encouraged me to take it so that I could grow into, uh, you know, I was like a growth manager. Mm -hmm. uh, And they were either going to hire someone above me or coach me up into eventually leading the team. So I was like, screw that. I'm going to let you hire someone above me. I'm going to learn as much as I can and grow into this role. This is my dream job. And so I took the program. It blew my mind. I have all these notes to this day, but I ran into all these challenges when it came to implementation. And it was like, I knew the place, I knew what to do. And in an academic vacuum, I was ready. But then when it came to actually execute, I got all this pushback and you know, my head of sales was like, dude, we're not doing that, we're doing this instead. And I was like, well, shoot, I don't have a playbook for this. And so what I've learned over the years is that's a pattern, not so much the curriculum, but a lot of times I work with really amazing, talented people who know what to do. They know the growth plays, the frameworks, the strategies, they know the approaches, or at least the vast majority of them. But what they need help with or what they struggle with is how do you get it done at X company or at Y company? At at companies where either maybe your founder is micromanaging or kind of meddling what you're doing or a company that hires you thinking you're going to do one thing and then you come in and and really what you identify that they need is something totally different. And then all of a sudden you have this mismatch or a place where you put together a strategy, but you don't gain alignment with your cross-functional stakeholders from sales, from product, from business intelligence, whomever it might be. And so what I've learned is, Once you gain a certain level of like growth domain mastery, the other stuff becomes more important or as important to your success. And so I kind of learned it the hard way because I worked at a company where I just, I ran into the wall and then I kind of had to navigate on my own. And it's part of why I started doing what I do as a coach is helping other people navigate their way through that.
0: And we, I remember a conversation we've had at some point where it was related with the average tenure of a growth person. And it's always, what, one to two years? Because these things become exhausting to us operators out there. And what would you say people can do to sort of not get there? Because I my hypothesis is that people leave way too soon, and they leave so much value on the table, value they could have delivered but didn't because
1: they were unable to deal with certain things. So what do you think people should pay attention to? It breaks my heart, man. You know, I just feel like when the pandemic hit, it sort of aligned with product-led growth exploding. And I think even more so now that we're going through like tough times in the software world, where now companies are having layoffs, they're looking for more efficiency, they're looking to decrease CAC. I mean, PLG is a great solution to some of those problems, Uh, not for every business, but certainly Mm -hmm. for some. And so I just, I started seeing this explosion of companies hiring heads of growth. And then I also, not too long afterwards, I would see an explosion of the same company also hiring a head of growth. Like six months later, nine months later, 12 months later. And so, yeah, I think the average tenure is like 16 months. And I think a lot of that comes from misalignment about what growth is, what it owns, who it collaborates with. And so a lot of it happens even before you really get in-house, is making sure The company is the right fit for you and the stage of growth that they're in aligns with either interest that you have or aligns with the strategy that you think they need. I just think that there's a lot of company that slap ahead of growth title on a job and they don't really know what it means. And then they hire someone amazing. They come in and then they say, well, I didn't know you were going to be working on that stuff. Actually, we don't really want you to work on that stuff. Or, hey, you know, the operating system that you've set up here, you know, we don't really want someone who's working in that way here right now we want you to work in this different way. And then all of a sudden you're in this situation that doesn't feel good. So a lot of it comes by going really, really slowly before you get the gig to make sure that you're aligned about what growth is, what it owns, and how you get the work done. Uh, And obviously you won't have all those things ironed out, but just to make sure that at least passes like your spidey senses check and that you're in the right ballpark.
0: What tips would you have for people that are considering growth roles to sort of reverse interview? and make sure they're on point.
1: So what I did when I was interviewing at Postscript, because it was my second time working in a growth role where I was starting over at a new company, is at the end of the interview process, I just felt like the company had done a great job of vetting me and I sort of felt like, okay, now it's my turn to vet this to see if this is the right situation. And so I did something that felt a little bit bold at the time, but I called my own interview round. You know, we got to the very end of the process And I think they asked a great question. They asked something like, hey, we're at this point in the process, on a scale of one to 10, how ready would you be for an offer at this stage? And I said, hey, I love that you're asking this. I'm not ready yet. I said, I don't know what the number is on a scale, but I'm not 100% in yet because I have some questions. Like you all have gotten to vet me and I've shared some of my experience and some of the things that I'd be excited to try here, but I actually don't even know if this is the right place, like should you even hire a head of growth? Like I, I don't even know yet, and so I called my own interview round. It's a little bit less formal, but at the time, the company had just hit product market fit, even though the team was small. But they'd really started to take off growth wise, and I don't want to share anything that I shouldn't share. But it was clear that it was going to be a large business very quickly, and I called a meeting, even though the team was relatively small. And so I called a meeting with the three founders. And I basically vetted one, vetted my manager to make sure that we would gel on a personal level. I vetted the company to make sure that the challenges that I saw were aligned with challenges that they were excited for someone to come in and own. And then the other thing that I wanted to make sure about is that they really were ready for someone to come in and question the way that things are done here. And that's kind of another thing, right? If you work in growth, a lot of times, once you identify an opportunity, a lot of it is taking a few swings to figure out what's the right approach. And I wanted to make sure that they were on board with that, that it might feel uncomfortable at times, that I might be challenging the norm to break through plateaus. And that was the thing that I was really keen to understand. Are they really on board with someone coming in to do that? Or do they just think that they are? And are there three of them on the same page? And that was a lot of my mission at that point.
0: So you sounded like you Product market fit was sort of a foundational thing that you checked and you sort of validated that. Then you try to validate the manager and then whether or not they were willing or they were ready to have a growth, to have a growth motion there.
1: Yes. And I would add there's maybe one additional thing for myself personally, which was, are the growth challenges that they're facing ones that I'm excited about? Like, if I'm going to be hired as a cross functional head of growth, knowing that I might own potentially based on what the business needs acquisition or activation or converting free to paid or maybe some upgrade and expansion revenue over time, did the area that they needed help with align with stuff that I was excited to take on? That's yeah. probably the last checkpoint for me.
0: That makes sense. What do you identify as? So, there are things that everyone talks about that traits or characteristics of managers that are enablers of growth leaders, they're also maybe diminishers of growth leaders. Can you share a little bit about that? I love those posts that you make. I think I mentioned this, you know, happy Easter, except for those who uh, (laughs) do this, don't do that. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit, what are those, like the enablers versus the diminishers of growth folks?
1: I'll share a couple of like real stories that come to mind for me here. I think the two things that come to mind are someone who doesn't meddle or micromanage. And they're related, but they're a little bit different. Meddling is someone who has more experience, who uses their domain expertise to like insert their influence. And then micromanaging is someone who's just really not trusting and giving you enough room to do your thing. So there's that. And then there's another side, which is making sure that you have room to fail and that failure in learning is encouraged. So those are two things that I think are critical to having a boss, whether it's on the C-level team or even just mid-level and have a great relationship there. And I often lean on a framework. It's actually a framework for managing your direct reports. Comes from Andy Grove from the book, High Output Management. It's like one of the famous ones, probably on my shelf back there. And I always talk about this with coaching clients because task relevant maturity changed my mind as a manager. I used to think, hey, this person on my team is good. This person on my team needs a little bit of help. This person on my team is brand new and needs a lot of my help. And what I learned is that that framework really isn't the right one. And the right one is to evaluate The experience that someone has at a given problem, at solving a specific problem, if they have a lot of experience, high task relevant maturity, what they need from you as a manager is just to be available to help them problem solve, get unstuck, and maybe set goals. And if they have low experience or low task relevant maturity, they really need you to be much more involved in sharing what to do, how to do it, how long it might take, et cetera. So I take that same framework and I apply it going up when I think about how to manage up And communicate what I'm working on, why, and what I need from you as my manager. I'm using that exact same framework. Hey, I'm working on this problem. I've got a lot of experience with this specific problem. Here's what I need from you as a manager. Can we just double check on the goals that I've set here and this one problem that I foresee down the road? I'd love for your help problem solving that versus, hey, I'm working on this problem. I've never encountered it. I'd love for us to work side by side as I figure out the plan. So I think about that as just like a general framework for any manager. In managing up or down. But when it comes to the other stuff, so the room to fail, this is something, again, that you can tease out during the interview process. You can ask it directly, is there room to fail? Or you can ask it more indirectly by sharing what was one of the more recent failures that your team had recently and what did you learn from it? Or how did you encourage that failure to happen? Or you know, you can ask it even more open-ended than that. But I think that that's a great way to do it. And, you know, even going back to when I first interviewed at Wistia, I got to the last round of interviews is a long interview process. And I met with Chris, who's the CEO and Kevin, who is the COO at that time, intimidating round of interviews. You know, the time was like 25 and I'm interviewing with them and we talked about failure and they were hiring me as an acquisition marketer, but it was like half performance acquisition. And the other half was trying to convert more of their existing traffic. They had a lot of traffic and they thought Mm -hmm. their conversion rate would be higher. And I tried to lay it out and I was like, look, I come from the world of advertising where I just saw this playbook at Disney. They really encourage the failing as long as there's analysis and follow-up and tinkering and iteration. Is that a playbook that you all are excited about here? And Chris said something really interesting. I always remember this. He said something like, if we're not failing, it means we're not being aggressive enough and we're doing safe things. And if we're only doing safe things, that to us isn't exciting as a business, and it means that we're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. And I was like, hell yeah, man. So that got me really excited to work with them. And then, you know, I feel like going back to what we were sharing before, making sure that your manager is empowering you to do great work is also really important. And I fell into this trap early on where, you know, even when I was a few months in, sometimes Chris would give me ideas, like I'd be working on news or onboarding, or I'd be working on a bunch of experiments on the pricing page or something like that. And I had this backlog of ideas. And occasionally our CEO, Chris would say, Hey, Andrew, wanted to put this on your radar. I just talked to this other founder at whatever company, and they're doing this and seeing a lot of success, wanted to make sure you knew about it. And I'd be like, I'm on it, Chris. I'll run this test this week. I'll report back to you tomorrow, you know, next week about what we're learning so far. I'll rally the troops. I'll let everybody know. And I did that a few times. And then one day he pulled me aside and he was like, dude, I know what you're doing and I want you to stop. And he was like, I know I'm the CEO and it's tempting to just do things because they're my idea. And and, and he literally sat down next to me at my desk in the open floor plan. He said this and he said something like, I have a million bad ideas just because another company did it doesn't mean it's going to work here. It doesn't even mean that it's real. They might just be fluffing their feathers a little bit. And he said, my job is to share the ideas with the right person. In this case, that's you. Your job is to evaluate if it's a good idea. Don't do it because I'm the CEO. Only do it if it's the right idea. I want to empower you to prioritize based on the system that you're prioritizing everything else. And it just like changed my mind in the way that I thought about my job and how to work with executives and how to manage up. And, and really the goal was to prioritize more. So I always think about those two things, room to fail and making sure that you're empowered to prioritize based on impact, not based on seniority. There's a little bit of luck there, uh, I guess. Totally, it, totally. It and dude, I didn't know how lucky I had it until- Exactly. It, not that things changed dramatically at PostScript, but I talked to a lot of folks as a coach who work in situations that aren't that. And it's a totally different job if it's not that. So I learned how important that can be.
0: Finding the right team, the right manager, the right peers to work with can have such a tremendous impact in your evolution as a person and as a professional that totally love the idea of interviewing them, right? Like Elena uses the term reverse interviewing, totally love that. And um, there's one thing you didn't touch on, but I know you have some good nuggets of wisdom there related with the seniority of the people you hire and how they can be hindered or boosted by the way you act. Like if you hire someone really senior to do something and then you treat them like they were out of college. And sometimes I guess founders, they don't even realize they're doing that. And that is really frustrating. Is it just something that I felt occasionally? Or do you see others also going through the same struggles?
1: I see it as a pattern. Everybody struggles with something, right? There's no such thing as an easy job, right? These aren't easy jobs working in growth. Either it's hard to grow the business or it's hard to get good work done or, or a million other things that can make these types of roles challenging. But yeah, I see it as a pattern for sure especially with early stage companies when you're working directly with founders, first-time founders, I see this as a pattern as well, but these are people who are really passionate about solving an idea. It's not like this happens, nobody intends to be a micromanager, right? Nobody wants to do that, but when you're really passionate about the business and you feel really strongly about the vision, about where you're headed, sometimes this is a byproduct of that, where you micromanage a person or you meddle in an area instead of empowering. And again, if you read business books on this, Like the actual organizational output is that someone takes a a narrower view of their role. Like they will literally do safer work. They will take on less risky things. They will work on more incremental stuff. They will delay decisions because they know you're going to remake the decision anyways. And so because that everything slows down and then the founder or whoever the manager is, is frustrated because now they're looking at the person and they're not getting as much done. And really that's the root cause is what's underneath it. So I see it all the time, man. Uh, and it's a bummer and it breaks my heart and look, it goes both ways, right? I mean, if you're working with someone who's micromanaging or meddling, it's also on you to manage up a little bit. And I use that task relevant maturity framework as one way to do it. But the reality is ultimately it's someone else's company. And if you're reporting up to them, there's always a little bit of uh, tension there that you can navigate, but that is real.
0: Yeah. True. And um- you can always find an alternative and just leave. But I had this friend of mine, he works at Google. He said, at one point I was talking to him and he said, it's very unlikely that you will be able to change the way your manager manages. Very unlikely. So Unless they're you, working
1: with a coach or they're proactively yeah. looking and, and asking for feedback. Yeah, totally.
0: So it's either you adapt yourself to that, or if that really collides with your values, you might be better off finding something else, which is not a tragedy, I think. So going back here to failing, because I, I we jumped here and I had this uh, written down here, going back to failing, can you give us one or two examples of like failed experiments that turned out either big learnings or turned out to be really uncomfortable for you and how you dealt with those emotions and, imposter syndrome and and whatnot?
1: They're all uncomfortable, man. It never gets easier. It doesn't feel any easier for me. I'll share a story. I'll just share a little bit of context. When I first got into growth, I couldn't get enough. You know, I, I shared, I took Reforge back in 2015. And then I just dove into all these pre-recorded conference stuff that's on YouTube. I forget the name of the conference. It's like, it was like in 2015 or 2016, it was like all these growth pioneers. It was like the Facebook growth team, like Andy John and Chamath and Brian Balfour spoke at it. It was like 500 startups conference or micro conference or something like that. It's incredible. It's on YouTube. If anyone listening, you should check that out. So I listened to all this stuff and I was like, man, I'm just going to copy what all the smart people have done. Like that's the cheat code. Like other people just don't know this stuff. I'll just do what these smart people have done. And what I learned pretty quick is that doesn't work. You know, cause like the reason why these people are successful is cause they followed a process that led them to the answer. And it wasn't about the answer being a superior answer. It was the process led them to this answer. And this was an effective answer for them. And so I learned that because I just copied what other smart people were doing and it wasn't effective at my company. And so I was frustrated by it. And I talked to my manager who was kind of a mentor at that time. And he was like, look, what if we defined success for experimentation as learning? And what if before you ran an experiment, in your experiment doc that I would fill out for each one that I created, what if you wrote out, if this experiment works, here's what I learned from it, and here's what I'm going to do next. And if this experiment fails, here's what I learned from that, and here's what I want to do next. And here's who else I can share those learnings with so that I can enable and empower other areas of the org. And he was like, if you define success in this way, one, you're going to get a lot smarter. And two, you're going to have an impact even if the work that you're focused on doesn't move the needle in a big way today. And so when my mind shifted, it kind of unlocked a bunch of stuff for me. And so I was hyper-focused on new user onboarding for probably 16 months. Uh, And when I say me, the team that I was working with. Myself, an amazing designer, an amazing engineer, a couple of engineers actually, it was kind of the first version of the team that was just hyper-focused on onboarding. And so we started trying stuff. And no one had ever worked on onboarding, really at Wistia before that. It was like you got dropped into the account. And even though we had like tens of thousands of people that were signing up, for the most part, nobody really was focused on it. And so we were like, well, what if we just start by copying? I forget who the company was that did this, but in their products, they dropped people in and everything was blacked out except for like the one thing that they wanted you to do. And we're like, great, let's just copy what company X did. We'll do that. Seems like they're smarter than us. Maybe that'll work. So we did that and that moved the needle negatively. And we're like, all right, well, that was the wrong (laughs) thing. So we reverted back and then we're like, all right, intercom seems pretty popular. What if we just made intercom pop-ups and we'll just tour people around what we want them to do. And then we implemented that and it made no difference whatsoever. And we're like, what the hell, man? And so we're like, all right. then we started learning like, well, the issue with intercom was that the pop-up would show up. And then once you dismissed it, it was gone forever. And so a lot of times people would dismiss it because it was in the way and then they couldn't bring it back. And so we learned that and we're like, all right, what if we build our own custom prompts? Because there wasn't other tooling at that time. And we're like, well, what if we build our own custom prompts that people can minimize when they don't want it and they can maximize when they do want it? So we tried that moved the needle a little bit. And we're like, all right, well, we're to something here. What if we iterate on this and we'll make something that always is available for people to maximize and minimize that lives on the screen, but it doesn't cover up the important stuff. It just lives near the important stuff. And so we custom built this amazing new user checklist that moved the needle in a big way. And then we're like, all right, well, we got this new user checklist. This is really cool. Now we've really increased our activation rates because we have this thing. It's available when people need it. They can minimize it. They can maximize it. It doesn't cover over the important stuff on the screen. What else could we do? And so we're like, well, we've learned segmentation is really helpful in other areas of the funnel. What if we segmented it? And so then we started collecting information when people signed up for the product and customizing that onboarding checklist. And then that was really cool. And so that journey to me is a great example of how you can just stack a whole bunch of misses and it leads you to the answer. And I've talked on LinkedIn and in other places about new user onboarding checklists and people think, Oh, that's some kind of cheat code. And it's not like, that's just fun to talk about because it's a win. But what brought us there was like the six things that we tried before where we're banging our heads against the wall. And I had to get up at the weekly show and tell and say, Hey, we're hyper-focused on onboarding. Here's what success looks like. Here's how we're approaching the work. And we've had another miss, right? It's like that stuff sucks, but that's a huge part of getting to a win.
0: What was the timeframe here of, all these little things that you tried, was it like a year or two years of testing? Or It's
1: probably about a year of testing.
0: A year of testing, which leads me to the question, how would you position this type of dynamics to a manager? I feel like there's some context that managers need to let these folks do their work without having their manager on their back? Like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? What are you doing? What if you try this? What if you try that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Honestly, I would do what my manager did for me. So my views on growth teams have evolved a little bit, where I used to just think a growth team's job was to move the needle up and to the right. To an extent it is. But when I think about the real impact of a growth team, it's a learning and impact multiplier. And so just like my manager kind of forced me or changed my mind and said, what if we defined success as learning and not just learning ourselves, but learning and then sharing that learning with other teams so that they can apply it within their ownership areas. And when I think if you define experimentation in that way, then the whole company gets better, right? So if we're learning things about segmentation, and we're sharing about how it's working in onboarding, obviously we want to be sharing that with the marketing team and giving a feedback loop there. And maybe even sharing with the sales and customer success team, here's the segments that we're working on. Here's the segments that are driving the most value. Here's the segments that have the highest churn rate, right? All those things are really, really interesting and help other teams get better. And so when I think about a manager, whether it's a founder or a mid-level, whoever, manager, I would be really asking your team and managing your team to the learnings, and the sharing of that information with the rest of the org. Because one, if they're not prioritizing learning, that's a huge red flag, right? And that's something that as a manager, you can course correct. And if someone is prioritizing learning, but it's not the right type of learning, maybe it's too iterative versus innovative. Like maybe they're taking too small of the swings, it's too many quick wins versus some bigger swings. That's something that you can course correct. Or if they're prioritizing learnings on things that they've already learned, then that might be something that you can point out. But I think if you can focus on the learnings and then really make sure that they're sharing those learnings and customizing them for other teams, that to me is a really actionable thing that any manager can do that will empower your team to do good work and will still allow you to have input without having too much meddling.
0: That's a very good way to end this. Thank you so much for being here. We talked about a bunch of stuff. We talked about our own emotions as uh, growth operators. We talked about hiring. We talked about failing a lot. We also talked about managing up and also managing down just 30 seconds ago a little bit. It was great. I'd love to give you the opportunity to share where people can find you online and how you can help them or them help you. And uh, we'll call this an end.
1: Sounds great, man. Well, thank you again for having me. Yeah, if anyone's interested in connecting, LinkedIn is probably the channel I am most active on. Andrew kaplans I'm sure you'll you'll see it in the show title here. And if you're interested in what I'm doing at Delivering Value, the URL is deliveringvalue.co is where you can find me online. And I am getting ready to launch my own podcast show, Going Deep on the mindset in the frameworks that we talked a little bit about today of the people who work in these types of roles. It's gonna be called the Delivering Value Podcast. You can find it on all the other podcast networks in addition to this great podcast.
0: Awesome, I'm very anxious for the launch of that. Thanks, Andrew, it was great having you here. I'll see you on LinkedIn.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, We will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews. And it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.